finances are intertwined with everything. And we could probably make that assumption about a lot of areas of life. But I think the thing that makes money different is that the way we spend money is very much reflective of our values. And it goes way back to everything you just mentioned with our family of origin and our belief system, our spiritual beliefs, everything is tied up with money. So when you have two people getting together and they're deciding how to spend their money together, what you're really asking them to do is to merge their absolute most core values, which is hard. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren. Hey friends, I am so excited about this week's conversation. Lindsay and I got the opportunity to sit down with therapist and financial planner, Sonia Luter, to dive into what she has learned about the intersection of finances and mental health. Just those two things together created such a fascinating conversation, and I walked away wanting to talk to her for several more hours. As Sonia talks about in this interview, money is complicated because it intersects with almost every area of our lives, and it really does speak to our values. So when it comes to being in relationship with other people, whether it's a partnership, a friendship, uh, a family, it gets complicated because so many of us carry different values. And our values with money are often informed by our experience. So during this interview, Sonia walks us through four money scripts that she has identified in her research that the majority of us carry around money. These four money scripts inform how we show up in our relationships, and they impact so much of our schema, understanding, and comfort with money. I can't wait for you to meet Sonia and learn how she is bridging the gap between financial planning and mental health and helping people better connect with themselves and each other. Well, Sonia, we're so excited to be with you today. I um, can't wait to dive into this conversation because I feel like you sit at a really interesting crossroad um, with mental health and finances, and I just think there's so much to explore. So let's just start there. How did you find yourself kind of in this space of the juxtaposition of mental health and finances? Yes. This is going to be a fun podcast because I have no idea where we are going to go because (laughs) it is so broad and so many options available today. So I got into financial planning as my first thing. Mm -hmm. I actually thought I was going to be a speech language pathologist. Mm -hmm. And then I figured out that requires a lot of science. And so I was out pretty immediately on that. But financial planning was right up my alley because I could still help people and it was numbers oriented. But then I realized I didn't really understand how I was going to work with conflict Mm. and Mm. particularly with couples when they were coming into their financial planning meeting and in a disagreement. So then I pursued a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. And when I got there, I realized that my therapy colleagues did not want to talk about money at all. <laughs> like, um, even if that was one of the presenting issues that the couple came in with, they would pretty much just shut down the conversation and focus on another area. And so yeah. it was so fascinating to me because meanwhile, I was also talking with the people I had just graduated with from financial planning 
And they were terrified when there was any sort of emotion within the financial planning meeting. Yeah. And they would even, if the client, there was one of my colleagues who told me that they saw one of the partners started crying during their meeting and they just ended the meeting right then and said, we'll reschedule for a different time. And I thought that was so <laughs> fascinating to see this, the same thing happening in both of these mm-hmm. fields, but in a different way. So that's really where I got interested and tried to find people like me who wanted to bridge the gap between the mental health and the financial planning. Yeah. I do think when we think just like high level of those two things, we think like very emotional would be a mental health couples counseling session. And then financial planning, let's stay out of our emotions, let's stay in our head. But I think something we talk a lot about at Onsite is that we're whole beings, right? Like you can't take the emotions out of the things in our lives that then evoke a lot of emotions. And I think finances do, we come in, it's not a neutral topic, right? We all come in with some kind of underlying understanding of that. And so I'm fascinated to hear in your experience working with people, like what are some of the things that people come in with narratives or beliefs or maybe their family of origin? How does that impact how someone's coming into a conversation around finances? Yeah. You know, I'm going to touch on what you said to begin with first, Mm -hmm. with this idea of that finances are intertwined with everything. And we could probably make that assumption about a lot of areas of life. But I think the thing that makes money different is that the way we spend money is very much reflective of our values. Mm. And it goes way back to everything you just mentioned with our family of origin and our belief system, our spiritual beliefs, everything is tied up with money. So when you have two people getting together and they're deciding how to spend their money together, what you're really asking them to do is to merge their absolute most core values, which is hard. That's a lot different than I like to exercise, you don't like to exercise, or I like to brush my teeth this way and you do it that way, or I like this type of food and you like that type of food. Those are all preferences and those tend to evolve over time and change and we can become more similar to one another. But without very clear conversations, our values are not going to change. Like that Mm. is who we are. So we're expecting to merge these two different financial lives by just skipping over the whole values conversation, which is totally absurd when you think about it. Yeah. So then jumping onto, let's just go with the family of origin for a second. And Brad Klontz is somebody who I work with a lot, and he's done some, he and I have done some research in this area of money scripts and how we develop these scripts or almost personalities, if you will, related to money mm-hmm. tied back to flashpoints or these really impactful moments in early life. Sometimes we can immediately recognize them and sometimes someone has to bring them to our attention as this was the flashpoint. There's four money scripts that we've identified in our research together. So one of them is money status. Mm. This is this idea that our net worth equals our self-worth. And this is a really fascinating one to think about. And what we found in the literature is that people who have this money status belief that what they are worth is tied to how much money they have tends to be associated with people who grew up with not a lot of money. Okay. Mm. And immediately I thought, oh, this is a weird finding. Did we do something wrong? 
But yeah, it really makes think it's a lot of opposite. Yeah, right, right. It does seem opposite. But once you think about it, it makes really good sense. If uh, I also came from a household where we didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so I can identify with this idea that other people had the nice clothes and they had more friends and they were doing more events. So therefore, I must need more money to be able to be worthy of mm-hmm. having these friends and going on these fancy vacations. So it does sort of make sense how a person can come to this belief with not having a lot of money. Definitely. So what's the second script? Money worship. Okay. Worship. Okay. Well, I'm not get going in any order. So you said second. I'm, I'm just yeah. throwing that out there. Money worship. Second in your brain. Yeah. Second in my brain. And this is one where we tend to believe that more money equals happiness. So okay. it's similar to the money status. Really what we're trying to do is, is really just get more money, but it's just for the sake of having more money. It's not necessarily to prove anything to anybody else. We just want more. So naturally, workaholics tend to Mm -hmm. be associated with this. Also, I think this is interesting that people who have this money worship tend to enable other people with their finances. So we're familiar with dependents and enablers. Same thing with money. And this might be the adult who is financially supporting their adult child by paying their car payment, by paying their cell phone, whatever the case may be. Mm. But they are just continuing to support this person, whether it's to share some of their happiness with money. I'm not really sure why this is, but we do see Mm -hmm. to see this relationship between money worship and enabling other people with their personal finances. Uh, Here's one that's maybe totally different, money avoidance. So these are the people who try to get rid of all of their money. They think that money is the root of all evil, if you Mm -hmm. will, and they do whatever they can to get rid of it. So we tend to see this with people who um, interestingly enough, for both of you who are in helping professions, they yeah. tend to be associated with money avoidance and mm. just wanting to get rid of money as soon as they have it. Yeah, I just was thinking from my own like life, I have seen, I would uh, guess that this pattern exists a lot like within a faith context. Yes. People who are like, that's one of their highest values is faith and Christianity in particular. Is that what you were going to say? I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Well, no, but that is really interesting. And again, think about if you have somebody who has this money avoidance, Mm -hmm. who marries somebody who is more of a money status, Mm -hmm. it doesn't tend to go very well. Um, Mm. But what I was going to say is I thought this was really interesting in our research that people who are wealthier tend to Mm -hmm. be associated with the money avoidance. Hmm. And I think it goes back to the family of origin, like you were saying, to maybe we saw that having a lot of money created more problems with our parents' relationship. We saw them arguing more about the money. Um, So we don't want to have it because it's just going to create more problems. Or maybe we grew up in a household that didn't have a lot of income Mm -hmm. or didn't have a lot of wealth. And therefore, when we have more money, I've also had this happen to me to where we have people who say, 
in our own family, oh, you're too good for us. Or, mm. oh, she has the fancy car. She has the fancy house. We can't go over there because we don't want to mess up her fancy stuff. And so if I start increasing my socioeconomic status, I don't identify with the family that I came from. So I'm just going to get rid of it as fast as I can. However, I need to get rid of it, whether it's giving it to other people or spending it foolishly. Gambling is a very common thing as well. So are people that are money avoidant actually, do they avoid the money itself or like thinking and strategizing and like the activities around money? Both of it, actually. I'm so glad you brought that up. These are also the people who don't look at their financial statements. So they might not even really have a clear sense of where they are financially. Yeah. um, Yeah. Because they're not looking at it. In the fourth Mm. script? It seems positive on the surface. This is money vigilant. So we're very watchful. Yeah. Opposite of avoidant. We are looking at those financial statements, every single one of them. We are balancing our checkbook down to the penny. Very alert, very careful with their money. But as you can imagine, this is also associated with high financial anxiety. Um, You know, the people who balance their budget down to the penny and they will spend hours trying to find that penny. I'm like, it's a penny or a dollar or $10 yeah. or even a hundred dollars. Like let it go. It's not worth the stress and the hours trying to figure out where it went. Um, but mm. the money vigilant, they, they will almost obsess over their financial situation. So it's money vigilant, money avoidant, money status and worship. Money, money worship. worship. Okay. Yes. So you're not a money worshiper. Clearly <laughs> <laughs> not. That one did not stick with me. So as you are like living out a script or you've got a script, how do you sort of begin to break out of it or get more clear on like the growth around how you handle your money? Just like with everything else in our life, the first thing is to simply become aware that this is our pattern. I think the thing that I usually do with couples is couples, clients, is have them identify their very first memory as it relates to money. And that is usually so insightful in terms of how they're managing money right now. Mm. I was working with a couple one time and the wife was the one who wanted to come. And the husband came along because he was a very delightful husband and and very (laughs) supportive, but he didn't say anything at all the first two meetings. And then I, we were doing this love and money curriculum. So it was pretty structured in terms of time one, we're going to talk about this, time two. And time three, the thing that we were going to talk about is the, our first memory about money. And here he was, the first two sessions, not saying anything more than about 10 words. And I thought, oh, geez, this is going to be painful because he's not going to say anything. And it's really critical that he shares his story. And how I have them share it is by sculpting out their memory with Play-Doh. And I thought, okay, here's a guy, um, (laughs) very quiet, not engaged. He's not going to participate in playing with Play-Doh. When in fact, he picked up this Play-Doh and he made the most beautiful pig that you would ever see made out of Play-Doh. Like he took his pen And he made the little dots on the eye and he tore off a tiny piece and made the squiggly tail. And it was like, it was amazing. And 
then after they make their sculpture, they have to share what the story is about it. And I thought, oh, this will be fun. He's going to tell about his piggy bank. Mm -mm. We just shared that I'm from Kansas. Uh, yep. Very popular in Kansas is 4-H. For those of you who yes. don't know what 4-H is, it um, tends to be more agricultural based with children. It could also be home economics based. But one of the activities is you can raise an animal from a baby to mm -hmm. an adult, adolescent, if you will, whatever it is we call it with animals, and take it to the county fair. And what happens at the county fair is you sell an auction. Yeah, and then you sell it McKenzie at McKenzie was a big 4 H'er. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so you totally get what I'm talking about. I was about. like, I know where we're going with this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So his story was about his pig when he was about eight years old. He, mm. he grew this pig from a piglet and took it to the county fair. Also, McKenzie, what happens at the county fair? You stay with it. Yeah. And it's hot. And you're yeah. like super gross and... 100 degree weather, middle of July, just maybe it's more fun when you're an eight-year-old. It's fun when you're eight, I think, yeah. Yeah. And then at the end of that week, there's an auction and the pig goes to a new home in a different form. And I, for this <laughs> man I was working with, he said, I didn't see a penny of that. I was with the pig all week and then the parents took the money and that was that, like, end of discussion. And his wife looked at him and she said, now I get it. She said, now I understand where you, why you want to know where every penny is going mm. and why you're so careful about keeping track of things. And it was so revolutionary to him too, that he had never put these two things together to where, why was he so concerned about how much the groceries cost or how much she was spending on paint for the kitchen. And mm -hmm. from that moment forward, during that week, between that time and the time they came back, they had, he, he already had a spreadsheet, of course, tracking every penny. And yeah. he had showed her all of that. And they had even independently agreed that she was going to start taking control over some of the daily finances. She had no idea how much the mortgage was. She didn't know how much money they had in savings. And they had all of those conversations on their own without me even prompting, only because I asked about what is your earliest memory about money? And so to your point, Lindsay, what do we need to do to identify which of these four categories we're in and what do we do with it? Well, let's have a conversation in terms of why do we have mm -hmm. these values and these scripts? and yeah. Is that something we want to keep or is this just based off of something that happened long ago and that actually I desire something else in my life right now? Hmm. That's fascinating. It's so fascinating, isn't it? So many examples like that too, of particularly with people who change socioeconomic statuses, who grew up mm -hmm. in one type of lifestyle and then have evolved into something else. There's a lot that comes with that. And a lot of times people have no idea until you bring it to their attention. Hey friends, this interview with Sonia really stuck with me. And as I've been reflecting back on it, I feel like so much of it relates back to our values. And it has me thinking about how our values can inform our habits. Our lives are the sum of our habits. How we spend our time consciously and unconsciously will determine the trajectory of our lives. 
But what I'm also finding is the ways that we relate to those habits will also determine the trajectory of our lives. We created a brand new free mini course for you called How to Hack Your Emotional Health. Part of this mini course is unpacking the idea of identity-based habits and how connecting to our values can help us establish habits that we actually keep. Ones that we don't abandon after a week And we dive into the idea of how understanding our habits in one area can help us pursue and live into the future we want to live in every area of our lives. I'm really proud of this free resource, and I want to get it into your hands. So you can sign up at onsiteisonline.com slash habits. And I think it's kind of fascinating because I think where I would I think logistically is people who have less money have more stress about money and therefore have heightened anxiety and heightened depression and, you know, more vigilance around it and, you know, feel more stress. Like that's the number one stressor across all age groups. Like, you know, when I was researching, but from the money scripts, you were saying it, it doesn't matter your background. It matters like the story that it told you and then how you choose to live that out later. It could be you came from lots of money and you now have money or you didn't and now you have money. Like it just is a interesting um, dichotomy of how we think it might work or how we could tend to believe that if you have money, then your problems are solved and you'll have a a good relationship. Yes. It's fascinating. Yes. You've done your research. One of my early childhood memories was uh, my best friend growing up, her grandmother had been pretty impoverished when she was young and she had married into and made a lot of money. And so we would go over to her house and play and she would have like closets full of stuff like Madame Alexander dolls and all. I mean, it's, it was like her whole house. She had just accumulated all this stuff because I think she, there was some like underlying fear or status thing, but it just Mm -hmm. was so fascinating as a kid to go play in these closets that were full of like really expensive things that we kind of covet, but that were just kind of sitting there, you know? Yeah. It was just interesting. It's interesting to look at those generational patterns. Mm-hmm. And we tend to see skips in generation a little bit mm-hmm. to where, let's just pretend with grandparents that they were very much the hoarding type, which maybe is quite common for generations to where the grandparents would be living in the depression era. Um, They accumulated lots of stuff, like everything from valuable stuff to the butter bowls that nobody wants. But my great grandmother had toilet paper from like the floor to the ceiling in her garage. She couldn't park a car because there was so much toilet paper in there. That's what I remember about her home. It would have come in handy during COVID. Yes, it would have. She would have been really all set up for COVID. (laughs) But she was a child of the depression era and was like, I yeah. didn't have toilet paper. Yeah. And then what we usually see of those children is they don't keep anything. Like they will get mm. rid of stuff as quickly as possible. Yeah. And then the next generation after that, they're like, my parents didn't keep anything and they wasted everything away. I'm going to save and be more vigilant of my money. Mm. So we tend to see these patterns skip generations and so we, I usually have couples, clients make a money genogram, uh, much mm. like a normal genogram to where we're looking at family patterns, but tying in some of those financial behaviors associated with it. And it's really quite eye-opening. I bet. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Are you thinking about your friend right now? 
<laughs> no, I'm mostly thinking about myself and my parents and yeah, yeah, just the the messages that we all picked up and received. Like one of my or another early like childhood memory that relates to my parents was my dad on his 40th birthday. They were we had a surprise party for him and he had like the person that was like bringing him home for the party like was giving him a hard time because he, there was like a deal on toilet paper somewhere. And so he like made him stop. So he like walks into his own surprise party with like bags full of toilet paper. So like (laughs) both my parents love a deal, you know, and definitely. And I think they both love experiences. So traveling Mm -hmm. and things, things like that, they've been good about sort of teaching us, you know, that like money can, can help, provide experiences and things like that and not just to save it it. so both and both and yeah those are really helpful conversations to have and frequently people ask about allowances and should we just give our kids an allowance so they can be better with money and there's actually no solid scientific research that supports that what we do see is that parents who have conversations with their children about money those children tend to have better financial behaviors as adults. Children Mm. who receive an allowance as a child, there's no association with better financial behaviors later on in life without the conversation piece. So I love that your parents were tying it back to what does money mean and do we want the stuff? Do we want the experience? Right, Mm. for sure. What, how do you have like good conversations with your kids about money and what should those sound like? Mm. Yeah. Um, Lindsay and I are taking all the notes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that there's any right way besides for having the conversation and sharing with your children how much money you make, I think Mm. is actually very crucial in this conversation because a lot of times it's easier just to say, no, we can't buy that or no, we're not going on that vacation or or the opposite, yeah, go ahead and buy that. Or yes, let's let's go on that vacation. Your friends are going on it. Let's let's try to plan that too. But really tying it back to what is our financial situation and what what makes sense for us, and mm-hmm. it can backfire. I will tell you that I have a nine year old, a seven year old, and a four year old, and they oftentimes like to ask how much money I have. And I said, well, how much money do I have in the bank or how much money do we have in assets? Like, they're different things here. (laughs) So he usually wants to know, like, how much is everything worth? And so I'll tell him and he'll be like, oh, we have a million dollars. And and he'll go around (laughs) telling his friends that we have a million dollars. I'm like, no, we don't have a million dollars that we can spend. We have a million dollars worth of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and so it's, but I feel like that's really helpful for him to understand mm-hmm. what do we have that's available to spend versus what are we yeah. saving for the future and what are we actively using our house, our cars and other things like that. So I think that's a really crucial first conversation to have is just mm-hmm. to help children understand why people are different. And yeah, yeah. And we also have the conversation about they get so many fundraisers. Uh, if you're not in that era, <laughs> not yet. 
but oh, it's so yet. stressful every day. There's a new fundraiser coming home. And so that engages the conversation in terms of what are they fundraising for and, mm-hmm. and why does it matter? And when they get asked to bring cans of food to school and they want to know, oh, do we get to keep these cans of food? No. There are other people who are not as lucky as us and who don't have all of the food. And they're like, what? They don't have food? And so it's a really good conversation also to have on that end uh, in terms of sharing your generosity when you're able to and helping children understand that there are people who live very different than you um, on both ends of the spectrum is, I would say, the the most crucial thing. We also have the conversation about we spend some of our birthday money, we save some of our birthday money, and we give Mm. some of our birthday money. Yeah. What percentages you want to tie to that, I don't think is quite as important, but just Mm -hmm. instilling that of when you have money, share it. Yeah. I love that. Good practices. Really helpful. Um, This conversation has has just kind of I have an example that came up this week. Like it's time for re-enrollment with all of your benefits and all of that. We oh, were yeah. going through and talking through it with my husband. And I have, we we on a, still on a monthly basis, we do our monthly budget together. Like we're, we're a team. We've committed from the very beginning. But I start to glaze over when we get to it. Like enrollments and my husband, we're both very diligent, but we're diligent in different ways. And I was just sitting there and we were talking about our HSA. I was like, if it's money, you can spend your HSA. You can spend it towards health things. I don't know why I have to feel. I was like, we were kind of having this conversation about how I feel guilty every time I use it. And my husband wants to have like a lot of money in our HSA. He's like, it could be our savings account for all the health things. And I wasn't connecting like our different diverse experiences. And so the next day we were talking about something different. And I stopped in the middle of the conversation and I went, oh, I know why you want to have a big HSA. And he looked at me and I said, uh, my family has never had a large medical emergency like your family has. Uh, my father-in-law died of cancer and it came out of nowhere. And so the security of that has informed a lot of the ways that my husband approaches like saving for the future and making sure that he's, you know, taken care of. And if something were to happen to one of us, like that our needs are met and all of that, where I have very different money baggage, but that's not... That's, that doesn't inform my decisions. And so I just think it was really funny when you were talking about values of how all the different things shape our values that I think a lot of times like we have really similar values, but around this particular thing, there's something in his past. And so you could probably see that if you drew out a genealogy or you drew out a money genealogy to say, okay, how did your family interact with that? So I just, that was a tangible example that's literally coming up in my life yesterday. And look how rational you were about it. You <laughs> wasn't in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about it rationally, though. No, mm-hmm. we'll just pretend you were rational then, too. Yeah. There but you the go, thing yeah. is, money is so stressful. It's you, so stressful. You did your research. It's the number one stressor for Americans. It has been for a very long time. There was a short period of time where political instability took over the number one spot, mm. but, but money's always mm. number one up there with the. American Psychological Association. And I mean, when we are stressed, we go into a very emotion-based reactions. We are not thinking logically. We're very myopic, very now focused, Mm -hmm. which is all the exact opposite things of what we need when we're talking about personal finances, which is supposed to be for the long term. And just that you could say the word HSA and have a rational conversation about that is so impressive because 
what if I threw out the words crypto and inflation and student loans and mortgages, adjustable rate mortgages? I mean, there's so much financial jargon that gets mm-hmm. thrown around and we just expect people to know what it is. And we expect couples to have yeah. rational conversations when you maybe don't even fully understand what it is that you're talking about. It's absurd that we expect people to have these conversations in a productive fashion. What's kind of some of the advice that you see with people who are combining their money or choosing not to combine their money? Like, how do you walk them through that when it's time to maybe cohabitate or they're getting married and they're combining their finances, whatever that looks like? Like, what are some of the conversations that you that you walk people through and some what's some of the conflict that comes up in that? Because I feel like that would also be wrought with a lot of conflict. <laughs> yeah. Wow, so many ways we could go with this. Let's yeah. just talk about cohabitation for a second. Yeah. So when two people are living together, not married, what we see from some of the research that I've done is when people are cohabiting, they accumulate more stuff, so the non-financial assets, and less financial assets. So the long-term savings, the retirement accounts, the, the investment accounts. And the more times that you cohabit, So you were with one partner, it didn't work out. You moved in with a new partner, that didn't work out. Each time that you cohabit, you accumulate more stuff and even less financial assets, which means you are less prepared financially for the future. And I think that's so huge for cohabiting couples. Even if you only have one partner and you live with them and you plan to stay with them for the rest of your life, still your financial situation is going to be worse off than a couple who looks the same but married. And I think that's a really important financial planning implication that we need to be paying attention to. It doesn't have to be that way. There's no reason why they can't. What are some of those factors around that? Well, we're establishing new households. So we like to have new stuff for those houses, the new furniture, maybe the new a new type of car that fits better with that house or the new accessories. We need a new boat or whatever, but it's stuff that we need. And when you put stuff in a financial account, like a retirement account, it's tied with a person's name and it's not easy to separate that. Mm. And um, same with even just a joint bank account that becomes a lot more complicating to separate out if you decide to be done living with that person. And so I think that's why the cohabiting couples are not directing their money that way is because perhaps it's a commitment thing, but perhaps yeah. it's just a an ease thing that mm-hmm. it's it will just be easier if we keep it separate. That way we can part ways if we choose and everything's nice, clean, simple. And and it's really bad, but it doesn't need to be. So just going into that relationship even if you plan to never get married, but going into that conversation, that relationship and having the conversation about, okay, what do we want our financial futures to look like? And how can I support you in that way? Or how can I not interfere with your financial goals? The other really crucial thing here is the amount that a couple argues about money at the beginning of their relationship, regardless married, unmarried, is very predictive of number one predictor of relationship satisfaction down the road. Not how much they're arguing about money down the road, but how much they argued at the beginning of their relationship. 
Once again, we're smart people. It's because there was a mismatch in values and they Mm. weren't having that conversation early on. So it just tends to accumulate over time. And this is going to be the same, whether or not we're living with the partner or married to the partner. So I would say that it's like number one key thing when we're talking about couples and their financial situation is just start the conversation as early as possible. Maybe you've already been together for a long time. That's okay. Start it now. So if they start arguing at the, if they argue more at the beginning, they'll have more satisfaction or less satisfaction? Oh, less satisfaction. Less satisfaction. Yeah. Significantly less. Because there's a misalignment at the beginning that they're not finding connection around. Right. So we're, you know, you sort of brought up at the beginning that it's hard to find a place to go with this Mm -hmm. tension that you might have with your partner around money because, you know, your financial planner doesn't want to be in the middle of your marital battles and then your therapist doesn't want to be in the middle of your money conversations. So what are resources that are out there for individuals or couples? And maybe they're different. Um, Maybe they are, but um, a lot of the same stuff too. I just tend to work with couples more. So that's where my mind immediately goes. There's the Financial Therapy Association. Okay. And this is an organization I helped founded 12 years ago, I guess. Oh, no, even more than that, 14 years ago. And it's a place to where people who practice in this area, they might be more of a financial planner who brings in the therapy side, or they might be a therapist who brings in some finances. But they're people who are working both areas. And on their website, the Financial Therapy Association, they have a list of people who have listed their bios there. So it's not everyone. Um, But If you're looking for somebody, that's a really good first step. A lot of people do the virtual meetings now. And so Mm -hmm. lots of options there. But I would say for anybody else who maybe doesn't want to go down that road, just like you, Mackenzie, having the schedule time to have the conversation is a really nice element to explore. And coming to knowing that every Sunday afternoon we're going to have our financial conversation helps prepare both of us. So I don't come to you and say like, I can't believe that we owe $20,000 on the credit card. Like you're catching me totally off guard and that conversation is not going to go well because we're in this heightened stress state. So having the established time that we can have that conversation is a good thing. Also, I'll plug myself there. I just wrote a love and money workbook and having the conversations laid out for you that, okay, we need to talk about this. It's not me saying we need to talk about this, but the book says, oh, we should probably have a conversation about whether we keep joint accounts or separate accounts. And blaming the conversation on the book tends to go a lot better than one of the partners bringing it up and having that conversation because it is so tied to our values. So when you can bring in that third person, whether it's a real life third person or whether it's an external resource or um, maybe it's a another couple that you could have these conversations with, something to where we can sort of deflect a bit from our personal values and get to the conversation and and eventually get around to us aligning better on our values is a a really wise step. Hmm. Great. This is super fascinating. Thank you for chatting with us. One of the questions that we ask a lot at the end of an interview is just like a practice that keeps you centered. I was going to ask like, what is a practice that keeps you centered 
around money and like maybe a money, you know what I mean? Like combating money scripts that come up for you. Yeah. I'm going to go more holistic here. We didn't even get to talk about the connection between financial health and physical health and mental health. I mean, they're all connected, right? And one of the things for me that I just absolutely love is going for walks outdoors by myself. And Mm. it really just helps ground you and refocus on what's important to you. And then everything else falls into place, the money, the relationships. Physically, I feel better. So I just really like that opportunity to be outdoors and just listen to nothing but the wind. Hmm. Walks are free. They are. Walks are there you go. Free. Tight back I know. To I money. feel like sometimes, like I'm, I'm aware that like everything that I want to do would cost money, but like walking never does. It's so nice. It never does, except for when yeah. you have to buy new shoes. I live yes, on a gravel road, true. so I have to buy a lot of shoes. It feels like. But oh yeah. Aside from shoes. that, the walking itself is free. Walking is free. So. Yes. Sonia, this yeah, has been thank so you fun. Thank so much for having me. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.